It's a spiritual problem. It's a sickness. I don't think it's really St. Paul's problem, but the longer that St. Paul continues to be a place devoted to the words of Jesus Christ, as Lutheran Christians in America, the more we're going to have engagement with other Lutherans in America, and the more we're going to find that not all of them think the way that we do. Now, I'm not just talking about how in Rockford there's some 15 evangelical Lutheran church in America, church that's flying rainbow flags, although that's an issue too you got to deal with. I'm talking about the divisions that do exist within the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. And certainly there are those like, how does worship look? Should we replace the altar with some rock and roll because it's the only way the kids will care? Or should we commit ourselves to those things which have lasted for centuries and millennia because they're what Jesus gave us? That's a real battle. It's still going on. You can visit lots of LCMS churches and find people with varieties of this, including the so-called blended attempt, which just mismatches the whole thing. I think it was Frank Hill who said something, you're not making Christianity better, you're making rock and roll worse. Um, but you know that's, uh, that's neither here nor there in one way. But I think one of the major fights that we have right now it's kind of the fight the church always has, is to figure out what it means to hold to the proper distinction between law and gospel. Now, if you've been in a Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod congregation long enough, you're going to have heard your pastor go, law, gospel, law, gospel, at some point. But do we know what that means? That's what I'm not so sure about, especially these days. Here, let me ask a question and, and see if, if this kind of pulls out the idea, all right? So, which is more important to you as a Christian? That your pastor always says what the Bible says, or that your pastor always makes sure preaching the gospel against teaching what the scriptures say, you have failed to properly distinguish law and gospel. The point of this idea, law and gospel, is not that one is good, one is bad, not that one makes the other one go away, but that God has said two different things to us, and they're both true, but only one of them saves us. It doesn't mean the one that doesn't save us isn't good, isn't valuable, isn't in fact what we're left here to pursue. Love, period. Law or gospel? Well, Who's the subject? If I tell you, you should love, well, of course, that's going to feel like a law. It's a command. It's what you should do. Does that mean you shouldn't do it or the pastor shouldn't say it? What if I say love is who God is? Well, now it's the gospel. It's not as easy as a checklist. It calls for wisdom to properly distinguish who you are in God's sight, because this is the real point of law and gospel. Those who are strong, First line of chapter 15, we who are strong, they know what the gospel is. That's why you're strong. Because you know that the good news, the good spell, the good story of Jesus Christ is that he was born of the seed of David, died and rose again to save you. And nothing in all creation, height, depth, angel, demon, power, principality can separate you from that love of God in Christ. And so there is now no condemnation for you. Those who know that gospel have nothing to fear from the law, even though you will certainly find days when you feel beat down, 
You'll find moments where you're confronted with your own sin. You'll find places where you just don't think you have it in you. But trained in the good doctrine of who Jesus is, you can even call your own heart a liar when it accuses you. And you can remember your baptism into the holy resurrection of Jesus Christ and know that that is what is yours, not some judgment based upon what you do. And so again, you have nothing to fear from the law. Which is why you're able then to look into that law, as James calls it, as a law of liberty. As something that opens your eyes to see how God made the world to work. As something that enables you to cease running around needing to justify yourself at all times and begin to look at the needs of your neighbor. Which again is now what Romans 15 very much is going to be about. As it says that we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. That starts on page 949 of your pew Bible, by the way, if you would like to follow along as we look at the first 13 or so verses here this morning. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with those who are weak. Since you know who you are in Jesus, since there's no changing that, there's no taking that away. Anytime you think, well, I don't know if that's me. Guess what? That's you lying to yourself. Jesus has chosen you. Take and eat. This is my body. How can someone made one with the body of the resurrected Jesus Christ not live forever in righteousness? You can't. That's the point. You are his now. You who feast on the flesh and blood of Jesus, he shall raise you up on the last day. Know that you're declared strong, even if you don't feel strong. And that knowledge that he gives you as a free gift by grace. You didn't earn it. You can't earn it. You can't keep it. It's yours, though. It's given. This then becomes the mindset of Christ, which turns you from looking inward at all times. Oh, I didn't hear enough gospel this morning for me to not even question. I know who I am in Jesus. Look at my neighbor. How do I see my neighbor who is weak? who doesn't know this, who still thinks that they have to do this or that in order to please God. And of course, in the context, as we've been going through this, the immediate section is talking about people whose hearts are convicted over getting too close to outward idolatry by buying meat sold in a marketplace that might have been used to worship idols. And those who were heavily connected to their Jewish background or influence, whether Gentile or Jew, but definitely some Jewish Christians there in Rome, who Paul has already pointed out have an issue with the Gentile Christians earlier in the book and tried to deal with that, they are concerned that if you were to eat any meat that you buy, that might cause problems. And Paul says, no, it won't. Those of us who are strong know that if you buy meat, it's just meat. But of course, if your friend says, here, I'm worshiping an idol in my house, have some meat, you say no to that because you don't want to let him think that you're going to worship an idol. But it's not for you that you say no. It's for him that you say no. It's not about protecting yourself by what you do. It's about seeing how what you do impacts other people around you. So again, the immediate context is one of a very narrow kind of thing in history. We don't really have the problem if you go, I said this last week, if you go to Costco and buy some burger, it has probably, I don't think, been offered to idols. It's not an issue, but it still very much is an issue that people find all manner of things to turn into their own little religion, to make themselves have some identity spiritually. There was a nice breakout at Higher Things this week about veganism and how it's a religion. It is. 
We who are strong in Christ are those who know that the gospel is that he is risen. Alleluia. That means he's your king. He's your Lord. He's your master. He has bought you with a price. He has chosen you for his own. And you don't get a say in this. He's doing this to you. So you may trust he knows your days. He knows your path. He knows the works he's prepared for you to do. You don't have to have your heart always worried about it. Does that mean it's never, you never need to hear the gospel again? No, I didn't say that. I just said that you can actually hear the law without getting all freaked out about it. And so today, when Paul is going to give you a lot of law, Romans 15 is going to tell you, imitate Jesus. Try to be like Jesus. Well, I can't walk on water. I can't be born of a virgin. You're right. That's not what he meant. He meant, do you see how Jesus thought about you instead of himself? Because that's actually what he plans for us to be forever. And so since that's actually really awesome, like consider trying it now, just, just wanting that a little bit, as opposed to always being worried about how you're going to protect yourself. I mean, it's not as though it doesn't sound like it's a better way to live. Of course, the concern some might have is, yes, but then you go out and you try and you fail and you feel bad. You're right. That's why we have the Lord's Supper. That's why we have absolution every week. That's why we sing songs about Jesus constantly. That's why we preach the entire text and do hear about him all the time. But does that mean you shouldn't try to imitate Christ or never tell people imitate Christ? Again, should you preach the gospel or should you preach the scriptures? It's a bad question. You should preach the scriptures, knowing that the scriptures will always preach the gospel as well as the law. And don't confuse them. How? Never think your salvation's about you. It's that, that simple. Jesus did it. Yeah. But you know what? Your life right now, you know who it's about? It's not about you either. It's about your neighbor. And if you can't see that, again, then we have a spiritual sickness. All right. All right, verse 2. I just said it, but here it is. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good. To build him up. That's law heavy, isn't it? Well, I guess so. If you're trying to judge yourself based on it, why are you doing that? Stop judging yourself based on it. Start seeing it as like a really good idea. Something worth doing, you know? I I do not expect on the last day to have Jesus be like, well, Jonathan, you know, I died on the cross for you, but you really love your neighbor, so I'm so glad you're here. I really don't expect that at all. Huh? I expect to be like, Lord, Lord, when did I love my neighbor? Because I see a lot of selfishness in me. But that doesn't mean I don't want to love my neighbor. The value of what's the so-called third use of the law is the recognition that we as Christians, when we're saved by grace, can look at the law with new eyes and not need to always judge ourselves. Will you judge yourself? Yes. And the antidote to that is to remember your baptism, to come to the supper. But do you only judge yourself? Or, or maybe you've heard it said this way, lex semper accusat, the law always accuses. It does. But does the law only accuse? No. It also encourages. And in fact, it curbs. That's a really interesting one. That's what it does to the unbeliever. Right? They're afraid of punishment, so they don't do something unless they might be punished. That's the curb. That works on your flesh sometimes as well. You can't get away from any of these three uses because they're what the Holy Spirit does with the law. 
And it's all part of the way God has planned to save us by speaking his word, which again includes both law and gospel. Okay, now I'm starting to sound like the jargon preacher, blah, 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 law, gospel. Verse three, here it is, imitation of Christ. Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. That's from Psalm 69, which is a fascinating and very long psalm. It's like Psalm 22. It sounds like he's on the cross. He's talking about all the suffering that he has to endure at the hands of sinners. There's that bit about how zeal for your house has consumed me. But Paul's quote he's pulling out here is to emphasize he's doing all of that not because he deserves it. Jesus doesn't die on the cross because he deserves it. He dies on the cross because you deserve it. And so the reproaches of those who hate God, us, fell on Jesus. He took them willingly onto himself. Why? Well, in order for them not to fall on us. So it is, in fact, the gospel, the reality of who Jesus is for you, that is the point of Christianity. There's no question about that. This salvation which God has given you, then is saved into something, which is freedom from the need to constantly worry about how God thinks about you, and thereby freedom to see where you really are with wise eyes, which means the ability to distinguish between great folly and great wisdom, what is good, what is evil, what is right, what is wrong, what helps, and what's just your selfish attempt to be pious and to look good in your own eyes. Uh, there's one more interesting section. I won't, I won't go off on this too much, but if you read Psalm 69 all the way through, and I do highly recommend you read it all the way through, it gets to a bit at the end where you're going to be like, whoa, I didn't think Jesus would ever say that. He basically turns and says of those who are like mocking him, um, God destroy them, crush them, make it so that they're never saved. Whoa. That's intense. It's called an imprecatory psalm. I really do believe we need to recover this in Christianity to recognize that it's a good thing to pray for the destruction, especially of the devil and the demons. And to recognize also that there are going to be many people, the path is wide that leads to destruction. There are going to be many people for whom that prayer will be true on the last day. Do you know that hell, when we see hell on the last day and, and the, the evil humans are being thrown into hell, this is the book of Revelation, you know what we're going to say? Alleluia is what we're going to say. If that's too law heavy for your heart, then I would contest you need to repent. And I don't mean like uh, change. I mean, recognize that you don't automatically agree with God. None of us do. We don't know what God wants just because. The Bible is here to tell us what God thinks. And to repent means to say, oh, I've, I have this trouble with this piece of scripture. But you know what? I'm going to ask God to show me how it's true. I'm going to ask God to open my heart. So I can think and believe like he says, because I'm certain that he's good and I'm a sinner. I'm certain that he knows and I don't. And I'm also certain that because he has already chosen me in Christ, this isn't about whether I'm going to be saved. Now that I'm saved, I can ask him like a child asks his father, will you please? And he's going to say, yep, I sure will. 
In any case, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. The point here is the imitation of Jesus. That to be a Christian is to want to be like Jesus, not because it's going to earn you something, but because you already know he's your king. I mean, really, like step out of Christianity for a second and just imagine you live in a world with an amazing, righteous king. Think Lord of the Rings. Think, I don't know, there's other fantasy kinds of histories. Think King Arthur. I don't care. He's the amazing king. Everyone loves him. He makes peace everywhere. It's so great. And I don't want to be anything like him. No. If you love your king, you're going to want to follow your king, right? So why do we want to trip that up with some claim about proper distinctions that makes it go away. That's the sickness. Why do you want to make the beauty of following your king go away? I'm not saying that you are, but I'm saying this is a battle we're in right now. Verse four is about how all of the Bible's here for us to learn from it. For whatever was written in former days, That's the Old Testament primarily, but of course for us now, the New Testament was written in former days. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. It was written that we might be disciplined by it. It was written so that we might learn from it. That through the endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. What a fascinating thing. Do you ever think about the Bible as having endurance? Like, I'd like some endurance, right? I'd like to be able to run a little longer without losing my breath. The Bible has endurance. What does that mean? It means that the Bible is going to outlast us. No word that Jesus spoke is going to pass away before he returns. And even then, when he returns, his word will endure forever while heaven and earth pass away. The Bible has endurance. And it also then has encouragement. That is to say that the proper distinction between law and gospel does not pull you down. It lifts you up. And so this is, this is really a true thing here. St. Paul, if every week you're walking out of here thinking, man, I'm just not sure I'm a Christian based on what pastor says, man, I, I just don't know if, if I've really got it, what it takes to be this kind of Christian pastor's talking about, I want you to tell me, because then I am improperly preaching. But it's not the impression I've been getting from most of you this last couple of years. I'm getting the impression you're walking out of here pretty confident you're a Christian because of Jesus and kind of glad to be here, even though everything's a bit crazy right now. I think you're encouraged because that's what the proper distinction between law and gospel does. And and here's, here's the battle, though. When someone tries to make the law go away by just emphasizing the gospel all the time, guess what happens? You don't get encouraged. You become lazy, in fact, lackadaisical. You become comfortable with evil things. You don't worry about anything at all. And that's a problem. Because guess what happens if you don't worry? You don't pray. Ah, oh, you should pray. Is that law or gospel? Pray the Psalms. Is that law or gospel? If it's law, does that mean we shouldn't say it? That's the fight we're in right now. And I'm saying this to you, St. Paul, not here. I don't think we're in this fight, but you as a congregation are in this fight. And you know me, right? I'm not going to back down from a fight that needs to be fought. Verse 5, he prays for you. May the God of endurance and encouragement, right? The God who gave you the Bible, grant you, plural, you as a group, to live in such harmony with one another. What's that harmony? An agreement in our minds about what is true because the Bible says it. It's quite amazing. When we all are reading the Bible as if it is totally true, 
then it becomes a hub around which all the lies of the world keep bouncing off of it. And it then unifies us in mind, heart, and spirit. We become people who live in harmony even when we disagree about stuff. Like whether or not you can eat meat, bar in the marketplace. You can disagree about that because you have a unification taking place in the communion of Jesus Christ. And that will endure past this life so you're eventually able to let go of this life. Things just don't matter as much. Huh? This is in accord with Christ Jesus that you together may with one voice glorify God and the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. How would you with one voice praise God? Well, very simply, by saying what God has said together being brought into the same kind of statements. I mean, I've said it already. I'll say it again. He is risen. That's not just one voice because you said it at the same time. That's one heart beating with a mind that God has given you. That is being unified as a people set apart from the darkness of this age as those who are sojourning through it to a life of righteousness and innocence and everlasting joy. To be able to know that's who we are, that's who God's declared us to be, and that when we're in what the Bible says, there's nothing that can take us away from that. Well, that is a great and powerful thing, and I would submit to you it's the essence of the Lutheran Church. The Lutheran Church had three things it said you need all the time. Right at the start, three things. They're called the solas. Remember this? The sola. Sola means only. You only need this, and you only need this, and you only need this. And it's how can you have three onlys? That's kind of the point, too. It's a bit of a mystery. And one of the onlys is grace. It's only by the mercy of God. It's only what Jesus did for you. It's only Jesus all the time. One of the other onlys is faith. This is only by receiving from him through faith do you actually have any of this. Only is faith the salvation itself. It is being restored to trust in Jesus for you that is the only result of the gospel and the only thing we lost when we fell. And of course that you might know both of these things, grace and faith, it is only scripture that we commit ourselves to. We don't commit ourselves to other words. We follow what the Bible says, scripture alone. Why would you pit sola scriptura against sola gratia? That's what you do when you say, I prefer the gospel to the Bible. Huh? Folly. Therefore, it says, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And this, again, is kind of the issue going on in the Roman church. You got Greek Christians. You got Jewish Christians. They're kind of debating over what life should look like. And they're beginning to look down on each other based upon what they do. And Paul is writing to emphasize all the way through the book their unity is in the justification Christ has achieved on the cross that they are baptized into so that his death and resurrection has become theirs, so that their battle with sin is shared with each other, so that they can know elect and glorious, they shall never perish, but they will walk through this veil of tears, worshiping Jesus by believing these things and uplifting one another by bearing with each other's burdens. In this way then, whenever you see someone at church, what's your real goal? To be hospitable to them. That's what it is. To welcome them, knowing that you've been welcomed here. How do you approach this cross? Who do you see when you look on this cross? And how do you feel in relationship to him? So then turn and be that cross to others. 
No, I didn't say be their savior. I said love because that's who your God is. And you can't look on him for long and not become like him. Hmm. Verse 8. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Now, this is again him saying that this Gentile Christian, Jewish Christian, Roman thing, you guys got to get over that debate. Now, we don't have that problem right now, right? We may we debate about other things, but he's, he's saying the particular division of the racial reality of those who are Jewish and those who are not, the early church needed to get over that. And he, he says that then by pointing out that Jesus indeed was a Jew who submitted himself to all the laws of Judaism, but that he did it so that those who weren't Jews could be saved by mercy. Okay, that's, that's what the verse means. And I'm going to walk it through it here again, right? So I tell you, Christ became a servant to the circumcised. Jesus was circumcised. Jesus had to be circumcised. Do you have to be circumcised? Do you have to circumcise your children? The answer is no. Jesus had to be. He had to fulfill the old covenant law. Huh? He had to be a Jew. Why? To show God's truthfulness. To show that all the promises God made to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses were true. <clears throat> to fulfill all of the prophecies of old. To be the one to whom those prophecies promoted. There it is. In order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, right? So Jesus fulfilled all sorts of narrow little laws. Laws that may be wise to keep now, but not necessarily. I mean, again, let's just think of the pork for a moment. Huh? Jews don't eat pig. Huh? You can eat pig. If you live on nothing but bacon, how's it going to go? Not so well. Why? Well, pigs are actually not the healthiest animals. They're kind of scavengers. They don't really turn the what they eat into something else the same way that a sheep does. The ruminant animal, it chews up that grass and it's got two stomachs. So it does all this extra work to turn it into a meat with a lot more vitamins in it than a, than a pig's going to have. All right? I mean, so, so there's a distinction between these animals. But does this have anything to do with your salvation? No, it doesn't. Did it have anything to do with your salvation in Jesus? Yes, it did. Because the law was there to show God's wisdom and mercy, and Jesus had to fulfill all of it. There's not a single jot or tittle of the Old Covenant Code that he didn't do perfectly for you, but this is the point. He did all of it, verse 9, so that you, the nations, might glorify God for his mercy. His mercy. His love for you. In order that you might know that God is a God who isn't there trying to trip you up, trying to see how good you are, giving you a test. He's the God who made you, who watched you like a child fall down the stairs and who has run down those stairs to pick you up. That is the gospel. That is what predominates our preaching. That is why we then want to be like him. Why would you not want to be like him? It's such a strange thing. The remaining section up to verse 13, he just goes and tries to show to these Jewish Christians in Rome how the idea that the Gentiles, non-Jews, are also saved is a very Old Testament idea. So he just quotes a bunch of Old Testament passages about how salvation is for everybody. 
And that word Gentiles, uh, one of these days I'll do an uh, etymology study on it and find out where it came from and why it means what it means. It's just the strangest word, right? Like, what, what does it mean? Like, I'm a Gentile man or something like that? No, nothing to do with that. But what it means literally is the nations, but they use that term, the nations, to mean not Jewish. So it's even the word the nations doesn't work so well for us today, because if I say nation, you think United States, right? Turkey. Australia, those are nations. Well, that's not what this word really means. Right? And in fact, you can hear some of the root if I just say the Greek. The, the Greek word is ethne, ethne, like our English ethnic. Yeah? So the nations could be translated as the races, but that's a pretty loaded word these days, isn't it now? So, so the, the point here is that everybody is saved by Jesus. It doesn't matter your family, it doesn't matter your tribe, it doesn't matter your skin color, it doesn't matter your sex. Everybody is saved by Jesus. And this is an Old Testament idea that he planned from the beginning to create the Jewish state so that he could join within it and die there for everybody. That's what all those quotes are about. Verse 13 then says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. There's your faith alone, right? It is in believing what the Bible says about who Jesus is, about what he's done for you, about what he's coming again to do, which is also for you. It's in believing that that for you is to make you live in peace and harmony with everybody else around you. And that means you're going to look a lot more like Jesus in terms of your position and your mindset. May the God of peace give you hope in that. So that when you hear the law love your neighbor, you don't just spend all your time be like, oh, I don't love my neighbor enough. Stop it. You're right. You don't. But like, that's not the point. The point is like, let's try. Well, if I, if I don't do it perfectly, then why would I do it at all? What are you talking about? Why would you not want to love? It's such a strange sickness. And again, I'm, and maybe I'm harping on this here. We're really at our time. But like, the, the feedback I got this week, it just blows my mind, is my, my breakout that I did for the kids was effectively pray the Psalms. Pray the Psalms. Read the Proverbs, pray the Psalms. And the feedback I got was, that's too law heavy. So, so saying, encouraging you to pray the Psalms is too much law? That's just weird to me. Because, like, you know what's in the Psalms? Whole heaping handfuls of gospel. Like, the reason I pray the Psalms isn't so that I can be crushed by the second use of the law. That's not why I do it. <laughs> you know, I, I do it because it talks about Jesus all the time. And I do it because when it's not talking about Jesus, it's giving me words to call out to Jesus to say, help, help me. Which, again, I mean, if, if prayer is nothing but a law to you, I got to ask, where's your faith? Prayer is what you've been saved into. And yes, if you're going to try to be perfectly righteous by your own works, you're going to get crushed by that. But when you know that the gospel is who Jesus is for you and nothing can take this away from you, the son of David has risen from the grave, then you are strong. In the name of Jesus. Amen.